0: So we uh, open God's word this morning, just a reminder that I, I preached uh, last week, I'm preaching this week, we're back to our regularly scheduled uh, programming next week, and then I interrupted again the following week. Um, and while I'm interrupting it, we're going to continue on this series of, of these, the, looking at the attributes, the character of God. So last week we looked at God's sovereignty and the implications it has uh, for our lives, that it's, uh, God's sovereignty should, should humble us and assure us and comfort us, but ultimately it should transform us. And this morning we're going to look at God's holiness. We're going to be in Joshua uh, chapter 24, uh, verses 1 to 28. This is a, a passage where, we're, if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, God's people have been through a lot. He's called them uh, to himself and Abraham, and then they've gone to Egypt, they've been brought out of Egypt as slaves, they've wandered in the wilderness, they've crossed over the Jordan at flood stage, they've defeated enemies on both sides of the Jordan, they now are in the promised land, and they've come to this place called Shechem. Shechem's a a historical place for God's people. There's a lot that happens there throughout their history. And uh, they're there this morning and they're they're looking uh, at Joshua and there's a covenant renewal ceremony that is happening. They're they're renewing their covenant with the Lord. And um, you might think, Marty, that's great. You said you're talking about holiness and I'm looking through Joshua 24 and I only see it once in this peculiar place in verse 19. Uh, is where holiness comes up. So there's, all this is happening. They're in this ceremony and God's people say, yes, we will serve the Lord. And then in verse 19, but Joshua says, you're not able to serve the Lord. For the Lord is holy. He's a jealous God. So it gives us pause. What is it about God's holiness that has to do with our commitment to him, our commitment to his ministry, to his people? And so as we turn there this morning, we will look at, at what it has to do with that. So would you pray with me as we ask him for his help this morning. Heavenly Father? As we open uh, your word. We ask for you to open our hearts, open our minds, our ears, that we may hear with clarity your word, and that you may impress upon us your holiness, your grace, your mercy, your great love for us, and the links that you have gone to throughout history to preserve a people unto yourself in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. So Joshua 24, beginning in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, And they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his people went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan. And you came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove us out before us, all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that He spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And so Joseph, Joshua, sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. The word of the Lord. This is God's word, it's without error in any part. It's given for our good and his glory. So, like I said, this is a passage of, of covenant renewal. They've come, they, they've had recounted to them all of the things God has done, and they've they've come now to, to, to pledge themselves to the Lord. It's a commitment ceremony. Whether we realize it or not, every Sunday we gather to worship God as a service of covenant renewal. It's a commitment ceremony. We hear from the word of God just as they did and we're called to respond just as they were. And so what is that response? It'd be a terrible thing if we could, if we'd hear the call of the Lord and we wouldn't respond at all. It'd be a horrible thing. But there's a second response that's also bad. And that's, that's a response that is destructive and it's, it's one that we, we hear and we respond, but only partially, only casually, only, only half-hearted or lukewarmly. And Scripture shows us that has a great concern of God's Word. Again and again to God's people, He reminds them to be wholly devoted to Him. So we must be careful how we make commitments to Him, how we respond to Him. Scripture shows us there are consequences. There are consequences to us committing to him and worshiping Him, but only doing it with our lips and not our hearts. Only partial devotion. In the Old Testament we see in Joshua 7, just a few page turns back in the book of Joshua as they're, they're told to go and, and, and battle across the Jordan, the people of AI, and they go and they send 3,000 Israelites into battle, and they get their booties whipped on the warfield. And they come back and they're like, What has happened? God told us to go and do this. God sent us to battle AI, and yet we failed. Why did they fail? Because there was one among them whose heart was not fully devoted. Achan decided to reserve for himself some of the things that were to be reserved for the Lord only. He took some of those devoted things to himself. And so the Lord's judgment came on the house of Israel for the insincere, half hearted devotion. Of his people. And turn to the the, the, the New Testament and see in, in Acts four and five. We get introduced to Barnabas, the great encourager in Acts four. And the first thing we're told about Barnabas is that he sold a piece of property and he gave all the proceeds to the church. This beautiful act of generosity, and people are like, Wow, what godly behavior. Man, I wish I could be like Barnabas. Barnabas is so godly, what sacrificial and generous. Goodness gracious. And we turn the page and those same people they're like, I wish I could be like that. We're like that in name only. Their imitation was deceitful and half-hearted. Ananias and Sapphira come before the church and say, we too have sold property and we bring all the proceeds before the church to give to the church. And Peter says, you don't have to do that. You, didn't have to give it, you don't have to give it all to the church. You don't even have to sell the property. It's okay, you don't have to do that. But if, but if you're going to bring an offering to the Lord, if, if you're going to, to bring an offering and say that you're bringing something to Him, holy, don't lie, don't hold back. Don't do it with rank hypocrisy. The Lord struck both of them dead. A little bit further on in the, the New Testament in Revelation. Revelation 2 and 3, we have all this vivid imagery in, in Revelation. It's really vivid imagery that's meant to, to move the hearts. It's to move the needle of, of God's people, of those who, who are lukewarm in their faith. For them, for them to be moved to deeper faith, to genuine commitment again as they've, they've drifted. And you've got all these churches and and he says to Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You're you're going through the motions and you can just go down the list of the seven churches and you get to to Laodicea and it says, what, you you think you've got it all. You've got wealth, you've got everything you need, but let me tell you who you really are. Who you really are is you're wretched and pitiable. You're blind, you're naked, and you're poor. And because of your lukewarm spirituality, I will spit you out. I will vomit you out. So says Jesus to later seasons. This language is evolving them out as the language of the Old Testament. It's the language of God to the people of Israel when, when, when they continually became half-hearted in their devotion and they began to, to worship the gods of those around them. And he promised them, if, if you don't stop doing this, I'm gonna spit you out of the promised land. And his promise came true in 586 when he spit them out of the promised land into exile in Babylon. So What's the solution? Scripture shows us that it's an issue that our our hearts aren't always fully in it. That we have commitment issues. What is the solution to our commitment issues? If we go back and look at any of these examples, we'll see that it's something about the very character of God. We'll see that it's, it's something about the very character of God that the church must draw upon, that you and I must draw upon for us to be really alive and sincere in our faith, to walk with integrity, that what we proclaim with our mouths is what we live with our lives. That we're consistent from the innermost parts of our heart to the fingertips of our bodies. It's the holiness of God. Look at Revelation 2 and 3 as he's proclaiming to these churches in their lukewarm heart. You look at Revelation 1 where John sees for the first time this image of Jesus. And it's not, it's not the, the, the person of Christ that we, we know in his humility In his flesh before the resurrection. It's the glorified Christ in all of his glory. And what does John say uh, uh, about him? He says he sees him. His hair is like wool. It's like snow. His eyes are like blazing with fire. His feet, his feet were burnished bronze. He was glorious in his splendor. And then John says these words, and I fell down before him as though dead. Throughout Scripture, as we see people come in contact with the holiness of God, it puts them to their knees they fall before his holiness And so John's saying I've seen the holiness of Christ I've seen his beauty and I fell before it he's saying that, that that's the renewed vision we need a renewed vision for the holiness of God and his son Jesus that's what will remove that will move us to to sincere faith it will move us to, to to genuine authentic commitment to God it's the solution to our commitment issues we're we'll going to look at, at, at Joshua 24 because like I said in that verse 19, that little verse that after the people have confessed and they say, you're not, able, he's, you're, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is holy. And we read that and we think, that's strange. I thought we were supposed to worship God. I thought we were supposed to, to serve God because he is holy. And Joshua's saying it's actually because he's holy that you, you can't. They were leaving out the holiness of God. They, they weren't fully devoted in their, their hearts to him. And Joshua knew it. And we'll look at why. But they had not properly considered his holiness. That's our chief problem. Chief problem for the church today. What is a vision of his holiness? What is it to be holy? That word in verse 19 in the Hebrew just means to be set apart, to be separated. God himself and his holiness is separate from us. There's an otherness to him. And we, we often think of holiness and we think of his morality. They just, he's separate to us because he's pure and we are not. And that's true. He is perfect in his purity. And of course we are not. And that's what inspires Isaiah's response, right? Isaiah comes in, in, in contact with the presence of God and immediately becomes aware of his unholiness. And so as he gazes upon the holiness of God, he looks at himself and sees his unholiness. And that's what happens. It's what happens when we become aware of the holiness of God. As we grasp his holiness, it is our unholiness that comes into view first. Not someone else's, but our own. So it's this moral purity of God. But we find in Scripture, more regularly, more often, not his moral purity, described as his holiness, but of his majesty, his power, his strength, described as his holiness. Exodus 15 Verse eleven, as Moses is recounting the experiences of the mighty God that he has observed in his life, as he has destroyed Egypt, and he says, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Who is like you, O God? Who is who is powerful like you? Who can do the things that you do? Who is so majestic and powerful that he can destroy our enemies as you just have?" So, who is this God? He's holy because he is powerful transcendent we see it another way it's not just purity and, and power but there's this aestheticness about it and we know this we just can't always put words to it it's why when you see something gloriously beautiful it moves your heart because the truth of beauty is found in god himself and in, in, in psalm 29 it, it says oh worship the lord in the splendor and the beauty of his holiness His transcendent morality, his power, his might, his exceedingly great goodness is gorgeous for us to gaze upon. It moves us. That's why in Isaiah 6, the seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his beauty, for he is holy. And so when we gaze upon his holiness, we find that solution to our commitment issues. We look at this passage, these three divisions that are in this text. The first is is in in verses 1 to to 13 in your text. And and then what it's telling us simply is that you cannot grasp the holiness of God until you've been grasped by His grace toward you. You cannot begin to understand the holiness of God. You can't gaze upon the holiness of God until you grasp the fact that He loves you, until you've been grasped by His grace. You can't look at it almost always in the Old Testament when God is laying out the terms of the covenant to his people, what he's going to expect of them and the relationship, how it's going to work. doesn't just start with what he expects. It always starts with what he has done. There's always a preamble to all of the covenant ceremonies of what God is and what God has done for his people. And, and, and that's what verses 1 to 13 are. They're the covenant preamble. They lay out what God has done for them. They lay out for them God's love for them. We see it in the New Testament. We don't have a whole lot of places in the New Testament where we get the full history of God's people. But even in in Paul's letters, you see this because every time there's an imperative of something you should do, before it, there comes an indicative, a truth. A truth that roots us in Christ. And that truth then propels us. That's what all those therefores are for. You know, you you if you've been in a church before and you've heard a sermon, and there comes a therefore, the pastor's going to say therefore, they're therefore. You know, it's a terrible joke. We make it every time. I'm sorry, and we'll keep doing it because it's one of the few we have. But they're there because right before it are these great and glorious truths that move our hearts to action. That's verses one to thirteen. Before God ever says He wants our wholehearted devotion. He says, let me tell you, I have committed myself to you. And then he starts. I called Abraham out of the darkness, out of the demonic darkness of his pagan idolatry. I called him out of that, and I took him to myself by my grace. And then the people of God went down to Egypt, and he says, they ended up as slaves, and what did I do? I, I brought you out of slavery. And then verse 7, as he finishes that, the last few verses of verse 7 are like my, other than verse 19, my favorite verse, words of the, of the, of the chapter. Because He says, and then like I was with you through the wilderness. So it's like five words and it's 40 years of their history. What, what happened in those 40 years that half verse of verse seven? Well, I mean, he gave them water from a rock. He gave them manna from heaven. When they complained that the bread wasn't good enough, he gave them quail. He, uh, he, he tells them that, that, he tells us in the first five books of the Bible that, that as they walked on that hot, scorching sand for 40 years, they never had to replace the sole of a sandal or fix a strap. That their shoes never wore out. I can't get sneakers to last two years. They had Jesus sandals that lasted for 40. <laughs> How's that possible? But by the grace of God, by His provision. He's faithful to them in their worst moments. And he says, furthermore, you got up here, you don't have any military training, you don't have any missiles or tanks, you don't have chariots or horses. And yet, you had to deliver over to you, the enemies." Before you, you came up and you saw the Amorites and I gave them into your hand. You you crossed the river and you got scared around the the giants and the walls of Jericho and again I gave them into your hand. He reminds them again and again through this of his extraordinary love. What lengths he has gone to preserve his people, to shower them with blessing. So you can't grasp this powerful vision of, of who God is until you hear the preamble to the covenant. Until you hear the words of Jesus who says, I've come to give life and life to the full. And the, the, these preambles and in the New Testament, the indicatives before the imperatives, they're like sunscreen. We need to hear them again and again and again. You know that the sun, if, you, if you're out too long in it, you're gonna get burnt. Everybody knows that. And so you put, you put sunscreen on. If you're like me, you put one coat of sunscreen on and then you go out you spend the whole day out there and you come in you're still burnt because you forgot to put more on. You know, I, I, got, I set a reminder on my phone to remind me to reapply, and I, sometimes I do it, and sometimes I don't. The times that I do it, I don't get burnt. We need to constantly be reminded, constantly reminded of the gospel so that we don't get burnt, so, so, so we don't wander away so that our heart's devotion doesn't get split, but they remain committed to God. Secondly, as we get to the Verses 14 to 24, we see that that if you grasp his holiness, then you'll serve him alone. You can't grasp his holiness unless you grasp his love for you, but if you do grasp it, it'll be him alone that you serve. Joshua puts it this way in verse 14. First, you have to fear the Lord, respect him. Then then, then it says to to serve him in sincerity, not in hypocrisy, the opposites of one another. And in faithfulness, put away the other gods. And he says, if you don't like this, if you think it's evil for you to serve Jehovah, the God that I've just spent 13 verses telling you all about everything he's done for you, if you don't want to serve him, that's fine. You've got a choice to make. You've got a choice to make today. And here are the choices. You can serve the gods of Abraham across the river, the gods across the river, the gods of of your ancestors, Mesopotamian gods, or you can serve the Egyptian gods, or you can serve the gods of the Amorites, the people that we just defeated. Your choice. Those are your choices. If you're not going to serve Jehovah, if you're not going to serve the Lord, those are the choices you have. It's an absurd question. Like he's just told these people everything God's done for them, everything that, that he's done to preserve them, to care for them, to bless them, everything that he's given to them, and he says, "But but if you don't want to worship him, if you think it's evil to worship him, and then then here's your choices. You can worship all the gods he's defeated. Take your choice. All the ones that he just told you he he defeated. You can choose which one to worship." where you can worship the living God. What deaf, dumb, inanimate God will you choose if you don't choose the Lord? And that's exactly what you will choose if you don't choose the God of Scripture, the one true and living God. It's a ridiculous choice. and It's it's why Joshua so quickly says, as for me, and he says my house, and we we got a cute little picture of like, oh, he's got a four bedroom, two and a half bath, two kids and a little lab. It's everyone under his authority, in his family. So, I mean, it's much larger than just our platonic family that we think about as the head of a big family. Everyone under his authority, they will worship the Lord. And, of course, the people of Israel will respond how you hope the church would respond, right? We, too, will serve the Lord. Of course. And then they give a quick rundown of what God has done as well. Took took Joshua 13 verses, took the pastor, the leader, 13 verses, takes them too. Sorry, we're a little more long-winded. But they say, we'll serve the Lord as well. And they come to verse 19, and Joshua said, I hear you, but you're not able to serve the Lord. The Lord the Lord is holy, and he is jealous, and he alone is holy. And if you're to serve him, you have to serve him alone. If not, he will destroy you. Joshua says, you can't take this lightly. This isn't a flippant decision to be made. It's not one of the many life decisions you'll make in the course of life. This isn't how many kids you're gonna have or what college you're gonna to go to or what career you wanna pursue or, or who you're gonna marry or where you're gonna settle. This is the question of life. Who will you serve? And out of it flows all the other questions. However you decide to answer that question will dictate many of the answers that come for the other questions. So why does Joshua say they can't do this? Well, they can't make this decision right now We knew that they hadn't abandoned and forsaken the other gods, right? He says that to them as they say, no, we're really going to do it. And he says, well, then put away the other gods because he knows that they have brought them with us. He knows that it it was lip service and not life service. He knew that coming out of Egypt, that that they had held on to some of those Egyptian gods. They hadn't destroyed all of them. He he knew that that some of them, like Achan, had taken a few of the household gods of the Amorites and, and put them in the suitcase for the trip. He knew some of them were even hearkening back to the ancestry worship. Before Abram, Tamar, Nahor, the Mesopotamian gods. says, he, he, I, you're not able to serve God because I see all these other gods that you're still serving and worshiping. It's the same thing being said to us today. What idols are we, we holding on to? What idols are we holding on to instead of clinging to the holy God, the jealous God? What idol does someone have to be holding on to to withhold from the Lord what He claims is His? You know that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. What what, what did they have to be holding on to? Well, that, that the God of greed, or of comfort, or of self-sufficiency. What, what what God does someone have to be holding on to 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 walk to his wife and say, "I'm not happy and so I'm leaving." And I know I don't have biblical grounds for divorce, but I'm just done with this. it's a God of pleasure. What what, what idols do you have to be holding on to 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 rage every time something doesn't go your way in fits of anger? What's the God of control? We choose these gods. So I think this morning we have to say to ourselves, we are not able. We're not able to serve the Lord. Because we only, we have to forsake the idols of our hearts. We have to forsake the idols of our hearts to come to Him and after Joshua makes this speech, they say, of course. yep, yeah, we got you, buddy. We're in. We're in, Joshua. And then we know from, from the book of Joshua and from, from what comes on is that, that when they make that commitment there in Joshua 24, they're serious that Joshua's generation was faithful to the Lord, that they didn't forget, that they stayed true to their commitment. I pray we never forget. I pray that as we make a commitment to the Lord, that we see his, his glory, as we see his holiness, as we, as we see his great love for us, that we become so enthralled with his beauty that we too never forget. But we know that God's people did forget. That somewhere along the line, they forgot to reapply the sunscreen. They lost sight of the truth of the gospel, of what he had done for them. And they, had, they drifted. Their devotion became half-hearted again. So we can't grasp the holiness of God until we grasp that his holiness will not destroy us because he loves us. Second, when it does when we do grab a hold of it, it is then that those idols begin to be forsaken. We, we, we see the Lord in His holiness, and we revere Him in His power, and, in, and it consumes the hypocrisy in our hearts. And We begin to put off the idols because we're enthralled with His infinite beauty and power and majesty. Verses 25 to, to 28, probably the, the most glorious of all of these verses. So you gotta remember that we, we can't grasp God's love before We can't grasp God's holiness before we've been grasped by his love. But once we are able to grasp his holiness, that we we serve him alone. But thirdly, here in verses 25 to 28, we see that it's actually more important. More important than our grasping of God's holiness is God's grasping of his holiness. That sounds weird, I know. But why must he grasp it? He's the holy one. He's the perfect one, perfect in power, in love, in purity. His name is the one to be defended above all names. His reputation is the only one that really counts among us. And so he must defend the holiness of his own name. And he does. He does defend the holiness of his own name. He he makes promises throughout Scripture to his people of how he's going to defend his holy name Right, as they're here in, 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 in Joshua 25, uh, verse 25, we see that he's making a covenant. It's not the first time he's made a covenant. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. There's no other God who makes covenants. Pagan gods don't make covenants. They make promises. They don't fulfill them. They can't fulfill them. They're fickle. They're, they're, they're violent. But he makes a, a covenant here, and, and, and it's only the God of Israel that makes covenants, and the covenant... The, 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 the way covenants are made is he didn't make it. it he, the, the word is that he cuts it, and it's, it's bloody and it's gross, but it, it is what happens. And so he cuts the animals, and what's happening in, in, in those covenant ceremonies between the suzerain and the vassal is that those animals get cut as a sacrifice to the suzerain. They get laid out, and then the vassal walks between them and says, essentially like, I pledge my loyalty to you, and, and, if, and if I break the covenant in disobedience, let this happen to me. And that's the picture of what's happening. But we know in Genesis 15, that the animals that are cut don't represent the harm of our lives. They don't represent what happens to those who are in Christ. Because God takes upon himself the covenant disobedience penalty. Genesis 15 is the covenant's cut. It's at the expense of his own son. Why? Because he is holy. And to fulfill that covenant, it takes a holy, spotless, with no blemish lamb to willingly lay down his life because he is holy. That's why Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you, when you go through the rivers, you will not be overwhelmed. When you walk through the fire and the blaze will not consume you. Why? Because I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see that his holiness, his beauty, so vast that it permeates even his promises, even his covenants, He has made with us. And so we come and our lives are stripped of everything. We come to God and he restores them. And he promises that they'll be restored many times over. We see that as as, as this passage ends it says, and, and Joshua sent them back to their inheritance, to their land, they went back to an inheritance that they never knew was possible that day. As they committed themselves to the Lord, they went back to an inheritance that was far greater than a piece of land for it was the Lord himself. That's our inheritance. That's our inheritance. Our inheritance is the Lord himself. That's the glories of the new heavens and the new earth that await for us. The holiness of God. An inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled by God's power. To the Lord himself, our glorious inheritance. This place of Shechem that they were at the people knew that it was an important place. They knew that, that some 500 years before this is when Jacob had, had buried all of the, the idols of his people at the terebinth tree there at Shechem. And, and, and before that, 600 years or so, it's where God took a man who was wandering, following his lead. They took him to this hill of Shechem and said, and to this Abraham I give to you and to your children. And so they stand on this hill that is a hill of promises a hill of promises to his people. And they know that God has made a promise and he will keep it for he is holy. And we look to a different hill with the same hope and the same promises for our God is holy. He's a keeper of covenants, and a keeper of promises. It's why Mary and the Magnificat can can, can cry out and say, Lord, you have done wonderful things for me. Holy is your name. The holy God has done wonderful things for you and for me. He laid down his life that we may be with him, that we may be reconciled, that we may have a glorious inheritance. So this morning, the question is, whom will we serve? And how do we deal with our commitment issues? We look to the glorious and holy God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. We thank You for Your holiness. How it inspires us. How it captures our hearts. How it captures our minds. That we become transfixed upon it. That as You grasp us with Your grace and we grasp Your holiness, we throw ourselves at the feet of Christ, our Savior. who by His blood makes us worthy and righteous. So we come this morning to cast our eyes on Him, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.